Section two of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume two by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine Parr, Chapter one, Part two. Lord Latimer was so strenuous a Catholic that he became one of the leaders of the Northern insurrection on account of the suppression of the monasteries and the sequestration of the church property by Cromwell in 1536. This revolt, though chiefly proceeding from the miseries of a starving population, who found themselves suddenly deprived of the relief of conventual alms in seasons of distress, assumed the tone of a domestic crusade against the enemies of the olden faith, and was called the Pilgrimage of Grace. Forty thousand rustics in Yorkshire alone appeared in arms, bearing white banners in the image of the Saviour on the cross, and the chalice and host depicted thereon. Their nominal general was Robert Ask, a gentleman of mean condition, and a mysterious personage entitled the Earl of Poverty, but an enthusiastic junto of nobles, knights, and ecclesiastics, at the head of whom was the Archbishop of York, Lord Neville, Lord Darcy, and the husband of Catherine Parr, were allied with these adventurers. They were knit together with oaths of compact, and they compelled the inhabitants of every village or town to take this oath, and to join the pilgrimage. They became so formidable in a short time, that the Duke of Norfolk, who was empowered by the king to put down the rebellion, considered it more desirable to negotiate than to fight, and a peaceable conference was appointed, between the royal commissioners, and a chosen number of the leading men among the insurgents at Doncaster. Lord Latimer was one of the delegates nominated by the pilgrims for the perilous service of laying their grievances before the sovereign and stating their demands. Four pledges were given by the duke for the safe return of the delegates. They demanded, among other things, the restoration of the monastic establishments and the papal supremacy, the suppression of heretical books, especially the writings of Wycliffe, Luther, Melanchthon, and others whom they specified, and that the heretical bishops might be condemned to the flames, or else compelled to do battle in single combat with certain valiantly disposed pilgrims, who would take upon themselves the office of champions for the church militant. There were also many legal and statistical reforms required, but the most extraordinary demand of the northern democracy was, that the king should expel from his council all men of villain blood, especially Cromwell, Rich, and others, who had risen from a humble station in society. In every era of our history it may be noted that the lower classes have disliked the elevation of persons of their own degree to the exercise of authority in the state. Such is the inconsistency of popular pride. The king was much offended at the manifesto of the pilgrims, and took upon himself the task of compounding a reply, in which he expressed his astonishment, that ignorant people should go about to instruct him in matters of theology, who somewhat had been noted to be learned in what the true faith should be. In this, his majesty, with all the pride of authorship, evidently designed to recall to the memory of the more polite members of the confederacy, his own book against Luther, which had procured for him from the Pope the title of Defender of the Faith. He also angrily complains of their presumption in wanting to mend his laws, as if, after being their king eight and twenty years, 
he did not know how to govern the realm. He rejected all their petitions, but offered to pardon them for appearing in arms against him, if they would give up their ringleaders, and concluded by bidding them admire the benignity of their sovereign. The pilgrims declined the royal grace under such conditions, recalled their delegates, and made them ready for battle. The wise and conciliating policy of the Duke of Norfolk prevented the collision which appeared almost inevitable. He prevailed upon the insurgents to lay down their arms, on condition of receiving free pardon from the king, with a promise that their grievances should be discussed in Parliament, and with some difficulty he induced the king, who was very peevish with him about it, to publish the amnesty without exceptions. The general pardon was dated December ninth, fifteen thirty six. In February the insurrection broke out again, but Lord Latimer did not join it. The prudent counsels of Catherine possibly deterred her lord from involving himself a second time in so rash an enterprise. It is certain that, by remaining quiescent, he escaped the tragic fate of his northern neighbors and late confederates, the Lord Darcy, Sir Robert Constable, Sir Stephen Hamerton, and upwards of seventy others, on whom the royal vengeance inflicted the extreme penalty of the law. The only daughter of Sir Stephen Hamerton was betrothed to Catherine's youthful kinsman, Walter Strickland, and not only this family connection, but the execution of several of the Nevilles after the Second Rising, must have rendered this period a season of fearful anxiety to Lord and Lady Latimer. It was probably about this time that Sir John Russell, the Lord Privy Seal, took the opportunity of requesting a very inconvenient favor for one of his friends, of Lord Latimer. Namely, that his lordship should oblige this person with the loan of his fine mansion in the churchyard of Chartreux, now called the Charter House. Latimer did not venture to refuse, but his extreme reluctance to comply with the request may be seen in the following letter, written in reply. Right Honorable and my especial good lord, after my most hearty recommendations had to your good lordship, whereas your lordship doth desire, of your friends my house, within Chartreux churchyard besides so, I assure your lordship, the getting of a lease of it cost me one hundred mares, besides other pleasures, or improvements, that I did to the house, for it was much my desire to have it, because it stands in good air, out of press of the city and I do always lie there when I come to London, and have no other house to lie at. And also, I have granted it to farm, to Mr. Newdigate, son and heir to Sergeant Newdigate, to lie in the said house in my absence, and he to void whensoever I come up to London. Nevertheless, I am contented, if it can do your lordship any pleasure for your friend, that he lie there forthwith. I seek my lodgings at this Michaelmas term myself, and as touching my lease, I assure your lordship it is not here, but I shall bring it right to your lordship at my coming up, at this said term, and then and always I shall be at your lord's commandment, as knows our lord, who preserve your lordship in much honor to his pleasure. From Wyke, in Worcester, the last day of September. Your lordship's assuredly to command, John Latimer to the right honorable and very especial good lord, my lord privy seal. From this letter we may gather that the household arrangements of the second husband of Catherine Parr 
were of the same prudential character which induces many of the nobles of the present age to let their mansions ready furnished to wealthy commoners when they retired to their country seats with this difference lord latimer's arrangement with the heir of sergeant newdigate was a perennial engagement by which the tenant was to vacate the house when his duties in parliament or other business called his lordship to town it must have been a serious annoyance to all parties for the friend of my lord privy seal to take an impertinent fancy of occupying lord latimer's town house under these circumstances and yet because the minister prefers the suit the noble owner of the mansion is compelled to break his agreement with his tenant and to seek for other lodgings for himself against the ensuing session of parliament in order to accommodate a person who has evidently no claim on his courtesy but a man who had been once in arms against the sovereign would in that reign be careful how he afforded cause for offence to one of the satellites of the crown after his name had been connected with the pilgrimage of grace lord latimer had a delicate game to play and it was well for him that his wife was related to the king and the niece of a favoured member of the royal household william parr catherine's sister lady herbert had an appointment in jane seymour's court and assisted at the christening of edward the sixth that catherine parr was not only acquainted with henry the eighth but possessed a considerable influence over his mind some years before there was the slightest probability of her ever becoming a sharer of his throne is certified by the history of the throckmorton family to which we are principally indebted for the following details sir george throckmorton the husband of catherine parr's aunt having incurred the ill-will of lord cromwell in consequence of some disputes arising from the contiguity of their manners of cofton court and owersley cromwell endeavoured to compass the ruin of his aristocratic neighbour by accusing him of having denied the king's supremacy the charge was peculiarly alarming to throckmorton because his brother michael was in the service of cardinal pole and had taken an active part in opposing the king's divorce from catherine of aragon as we are told by his kinsmen in the following lines from a metrical chronicle of the life of sir nicholas throckmorton for after that resolve stood the king to take anew and leave his wedded wife my uncle was the means to work the thing by reynold pool who brewed all the strife and then at rome did work the contrary which drave the king at home to tyranny throckmorton manuscript the subject of sir george throckmorton's imprisonment and the distress of his family is introduced in these quaint lines my father's foes clapped him through cantered haste in tower fast and gaped to joint his neck they were in hope for to obtain a mate who heretofore had laboured for a check yea greyville's grieved him ill without a cause who hurt not them nor yet the prince's laws thus everything did run against the hare our name disgraced and we but witless boys did deem it hard such crosses then to bear our minds more fit to deal with childish toys but troubles are of perfect wit the schools when life at will feeds men as fat as fools after drawing rather a ludicrous picture of their tribulations and comparing lady throckmorton in her tears to a drowned mouse he introduces the family of parr on the scene while flocking foes to work our bane were bent 
while thunderclaps of angry jove did last then to lord parr my mother saw me sent so with her brother i was safely placed of alms he kept me in extremity who did misdoubt a worse calamity o oh, lucky looks that fawned on catherine parr a woman rare like her but seldom seen to burrow first and then to latimer she widow was and then became a queen my mother prayed her niece with watery eyes to rid both her and hers from endless cries she willing of herself to do us good sought out the means her uncle's life to save and when the king was in his pleasing mood she humbly then her suit began to crave with wooing times denials disagree she spake and sped my father was set free in his rapturous allusion to the good offices of catherine parr the poet by mentioning her subsequent marriage with the king a little confuses the time when her intercession was successfully employed for the deliverance of sir george throckmorton the date of this event is clearly defined in the prose documents of the throckmorton family to have taken place in the year fifteen forty by the statement that sir george was released through the influence of his kinswoman the lady catherine parr and advised with the king at her suggestion about cromwell immediately before the arrest of that minister which was in the june of that year this fact throws a new light on the fall of cromwell and leads us to infer that his ruin was caused not by the enmity of catherine howard but of her unsuspected successor catherine parr at that time the wife of a zealous catholic peer and herself a member of the church of rome it was probably from the eloquent lips of this strong-minded and intrepid lady when pleading for the life of her uncle that henry learned the extent of cromwell's rapacity and the real state of the public mind as to his administration and thus we may perhaps account for the otherwise mysterious change in the royal mind when the monarch after loading his favorite with honors and immunities suddenly resolved to sacrifice him to popular indignation as a scapegoat on whose shoulders the political sins of both king and council might be conveniently laid sir george throckmorton took an active part in bringing his former persecutor to the block and instead of being stripped by him of his fair domain of copton court was enabled to purchase cromwell's manor of oursley on advantageous terms of the crown and to transmit it to his descendants in whose possession it remains at the present day few things perhaps tend more importantly to the elucidation of historical mysteries than the study of genealogies it is by obtaining an acquaintance with the family connections of the leading actors in any memorable era that we gain a clue to the secret springs of their actions and perceive the wheel within a wheel which impelled to deeds otherwise unaccountable the brother of catherine parr was the husband of the heiress of the last earl of essex of the ancient line of bouchier but on the demise of that nobleman those honors which in equity ought to have been vested in his descendants were to the indignation of all the connections of the bouchiers and pars bestowed on cromwell the death of that rapacious minister smoothed the way for the summons of william parr to the house of lords as earl of essex and the right of his wife catherine herself came in for a share of the spoils of the enemy of her house for his manor of wimbledon was settled on her tradition says that she resided at the mansion at some period of her life a portion of this ancient edifice 
which is still called by her name, is in existence. Cromwell was the third great statesman of Henry VIII's cabinet, within the brief period of ten years, whose fall is attributable to female influence. Wolsey and Moore were the victims of Anne Boleyn's undisguised animosity, and the secret ill-will of Catherine Parr appears to have been equally fatal to Cromwell, although her consummate prudence in avoiding any demonstration of hostility has prevented her from being recognized as the author of his ruin, save in the records of the house of Throckmorton. The execution of the unfortunate queen, Catherine Howard, in February 1542, preceded the death of Catherine Parr's second husband, Lord Latimer, about twelve months. The will of Lord Latimer is dated September 12, 1542, but as it was not proved till the 11th of the following March, it is probable that he died early in 1543. In this document, Lord Latimer bequeaths to the Lady Catherine, his wife, the manners of Nun Monkton and Hamerton. He bequeaths his body, to be buried on the south side of the church of Well, where his ancestors were buried, if he should die in Yorkshire, appointing that the master of the hospital and vicar of the church of Well should take and receive all the rents and profits of the parsonage of Ascombe Richard, in the county of the city of York, as also of the parsonage of St. George's Church, in York, for the time of forty years, wherewith to endow a grammar school at Well, and to pray for him the founder. The latter clause affords evidence that Lord Latimer died as he had lived, a member of the Church of Rome. There is, however, neither monument nor memorial of him in the Church of Well, for he died not in Yorkshire, but in London, and was interred in St. Paul's Cathedral. The conversion of Catherine to the principles of the Reformed religion did not, in all probability, take place till after the decease of Lord Latimer, when, unbiased by the influence of that zealous supporter of the ancient system, she found herself at liberty to listen to the impassioned eloquence of the apostles of the Protestant faith, men who were daily called upon to testify the sincerity of their profession through tortures and a fiery death. The house of the noble and learned widow soon became the resort of such men as Coverdale, Latimer, and Parkhurst, and sermons were daily preached in her chamber of state, by those who were desirous of restoring the practice of the Christian religion in its primitive simplicity. Catherine was not only pious, learned, and passing fair, but possessed of great wealth as the mistress of two ample jointures, both unencumbered. With these advantages, and connected as she was, either by descent or marriage, with some of the noblest families in England, even with royalty itself in no very remote degree, it is not to be supposed that she was left unwooed. At an early stage of her widowhood, she was sought in marriage by Sir Thomas Seymour, the brother of the late Queen Jane, and uncle to the infant heir of England. Sir Thomas Seymour enjoyed the favor of his royal brother-in-law in a high degree, and was the handsomest and most admired bachelor of the court. He was gay, magnificent, and brave, excelling in all the manly exercises of that age, and much distinguished by the richness of his dress and ornaments, in which his fashions were implicitly followed by the other courtiers, and with the ladies, he was considered irresistible. How it happened that the grave, learned, and devout Lady Latimer should be the one to fix the wandering heart of this gay and reckless gallant, 
for whom the sprightliest beauties of the court had sighed in vain, has never been explained, nor is it always possible to account for the inconsistencies of love. As the Seymours were among the political leaders of the anti-papal party, it is, however, probable that Sir Thomas might be induced to attend the religious assemblies that were held at the house of this noble and distinguished convert to the reform religion, from motives of curiosity in the first instance, till a more powerful interest was insensibly excited in his mind by her charms and winning deportment. Be this as it may, it is certain that Catherine fully returned his passion, as she herself subsequently acknowledges, and had determined to become his wife at that time if her will had not, for wise purposes, been overruled by a higher power. A more important destiny was reserved for her, and while she delayed her union with the man of her heart, till a proper interval from the death of her husband should be elapsed, her hand was demanded by a third widower, in the decline of life, and the father of children, by former marriages. This widower was none other than her sovereign, who had remained in a state of gloomy celibacy since the execution of his last queen, apparently wearied out by the frequent disappointments and mistakes that had attended his ventures in the matrimonial lottery. His desire for conjugal companionship was, however, unabated, and rendered, perhaps, wiser by experience. He determined in his selection of a sixth wife not to be guided by externals only. The circumstances that led to Henry's marriage with Catherine Parr are quaintly glanced at by her poet cousin, Sir Thomas Throckmorton, who dates the advancement of his family from that event. But when the king's fifth wife had lost her head, yet he mislikes the life to live alone, and once resolved the sixth time for to wed, he sought outright to make his choice of one. That choice was chance, right happy for us all, it brewed our bliss, and rid us quite from thrall. Throckmorton Manuscript When the celebrated Act of Parliament was passed, which rendered it a capital offence for any lady who had ever made a lapse from virtue, to contract matrimony with her sovereign, without first apprising him of her fault, it had been shrewdly observed, that his majesty had now no other alternative than to marry a widow, no spinster, however pure her conduct might have been, it was presumed, would venture to place herself within the peril of a penalty, which might be inflicted on the most innocent woman in the world, the moment she ceased to charm the unprincipled tyrant, whose fickleness was only equalled by his malice and cruelty. When Henry first made known to Lady Latimer that she was a lady whom he intended to honor with the sixth reversion of his hand, she was struck with dismay, and in the terror with which his cruel treatment of his matrimonial victims inspired her, she actually told him that it was better to be his mistress than his wife. A few months after marriage, such a sarcasm on his conduct as a husband might have cost Henry's best beloved queen her head. As it was, this cutting observation, from the lips of a matron of Catherine's well-known virtue, though it must have afforded him a mortifying idea, of the estimation in which the dignity of Queen Consort was regarded by the ladies of his court, had no other effect than to increase the eagerness of his suit to the reluctant widow. Fear was not, however, her only objection to become the wife of Henry. Love was for a while victorious over ambition in the heart of Catherine. 
her affection for seymour rendered her very listless about the royal match at first but her favoured lover presumed not to contest the prize with his all-powerful brother-in-law and sovereign a rival of henry's temper who held the heads of wives kinsmen and favourites as cheaply as tennis balls was not to be withstood the adonis of the court vanished from the scene and the bride-elect accommodating her mind as best she might to the change of bridegroom prepared to assume with a good grace the glittering fetters of a queenly slave the arrangements of the royal nuptials were made with a celerity truly astonishing barely three months intervened between the proving of lord latimer's will and the day on which cranmer grants a license for the marriage of his sovereign lord king henry with catherine latimer late the wife of the lord de latimer deceased in whatever church chapel or oratory he may please without publication of bans dispensing with all ordinances to the contrary for reasons concerning the honour and advancement of the whole realm dated july tenth fifteen forty three two days afterwards catherine exchanged her briefly worn weeds of widowhood for the bridal robes of a queen of england robes that had proved fatal trappings to four of her five predecessors in the perilous dignity to which it was the pleasure of her enamoured sovereign to advance her the nuptials of henry the eighth and catherine parr instead of being hurried over secretly in some obscure corner like some unhallowed mystery as was the case in his previous marriages with anne boleyn and catherine howard were solemnized much in the same way as royal marriages are in the present times without pageantry but with all suitable observances the ceremony was performed by gardiner bishop of winchester in the queen's closet at hampton court and the high respect of the monarch for his bride was proved by his permitting the princesses mary and elizabeth his daughters and his niece the lady margaret douglas to assist at these nuptials the queen was also supported by her sister mrs herbert afterwards countess of pembroke her beloved friend catherine willoughby duchess of suffolk and countess of hertford and joanna lady dudley the king was attended by his brother-in-law the earl of hertford lord john russell privy seal sir anthony brown master of the pensioners henry howard richard long thomas darcy edward bainton the husband of the late queen's sister anthony denny and thomas speke knights and william herbert the brother-in-law of his bride it is scarcely possible but the cheek of catherine must have blanched when the nuptial ring was placed on her finger by the ruthless hand that had signed the death warrant of two of his consorts within the last seven years if a parallel might be permitted between the grave facts of history and the creations of romance we should say the situation of henry's sixth queen greatly resembled that of the fair scheherazade in the arabian nights entertainments who voluntarily contracted matrimony with sultan shirar though aware that it was his custom to marry a fresh wife every day and cut off her head the next morning the sound principles excellent judgment and endearing qualities of catherine parr and above all her superlative skill as a nurse by rendering her necessary to the comfort of the selfish and irritable tyrant who had chosen her as a help meet for him in the season of premature old age and increasing disease afforded her best security from the fate of her predecessors but this hereafter 
among the unpublished manuscripts in the state paper office we find the following paragraph in a letter from sir thomas Rodesley relating to the recent bridal of the sovereign i doubt not of your grace knowing by the fame and otherwise that the king's majesty was married on thursday last to my lady latimer a woman in my judgment for certain wisdom and gentleness most meet for his highness and sure i am his majesty had never a wife more agreeable to his heart than she is the lord grant them long life and much joy together on the day of her marriage queen catherine presented her royal stepdaughter and bridemaid the princess mary with a magnificent pair of gold bracelets set with rubies and yet more acceptable gift in money of twenty-five pounds of course the princess elizabeth who also assisted at the bridal was not forgotten the pecuniary present to mary was repeated on the twenty sixth of september catherine parr had now for the third time undertaken the office of stepmother an office at all times of much difficulty and responsibility but peculiarly so with regard to the children of henry the eighth who were the offspring of queens so fatally opposed as catherine of aragon anne boleyn and jane seymour has successively been how well the sound sense and endearing manners of catherine parr fitted her to reconcile the rival interests and to render herself a bond of union between the disjointed links of the royal family is proved by the affection and respect of her grateful stepchildren and also by their letters after king henry's death whether a man who has so glaringly violated the duties of a father to his daughters as henry had done deserves any credit for paternal care in his choice of his sixth queen it would be difficult to say but it was scarcely possible for him to have selected a lady better qualified to conduce to the happiness of his children to improve their minds and to fit them by the inculcation of virtuous and noble sentiments to adorn the high station to which they were born the union of the sovereign with the pious and learned lady latimer was the cause of great joy to the university of cambridge where the doctrines of the reformation had already taken deep root the opinions of this erudite body on the subject are eloquently expressed in their congratulatory address to henry on his marriage catherine parr while queen consort of england continued to correspond with the university of cambridge in the name of which the celebrated roger ashcombe thanks her for her royal benefactions and the suavity of her letters write to us oftener says the enthusiastic scholar eruditissima regina and do not despise the term erudition most noble lady it is the praise of your industry and a greater one to your talents than all the ornaments of your fortune we rejoice vehemently in your happiness most happy princess because you are learning more amidst the occupations of your dignity than many of us do in all our leisure and quiet the dignity of the scholar and the queen are beautifully blended with the tenderness of the woman and the devotedness of the christian in the line of conduct adopted by catherine parr after her elevation to a throne her situation at this period is not unlike that of esther in the house of Asuerus. her attachment to the doctrines of the reformation naturally rendered her an object of jealous ill-will to gardiner bishop of winchester the leader of the anti-papal catholic party and as early as the second week after her marriage this daring ecclesiastic ventured to measure his power against that of the royal bride 
by an attack on a humble society of reformers at windsor anthony persons a priest john marbeck a chorister robert testwood and henry filmer were the leading persons attached to this community but it was suspected they received encouragement from members of the royal household dr london one of the most unprincipled agents of cromwell in the spoliation of the abbeys had since the fall of his patron changed his tact and was employed by the triumphant faction in preparing a book of informations denouncing every person in windsor who was suspected of holding opinions at variance with the six articles this book was presented to gardiner who moved the king in council that a commission should be granted for searching all the houses in windsor for books written in favor of the new learning henry acceded to this measure as regarded the town but accepted the castle his own royal residence having doubtless shrewd reasons to suspect that more works of the kind objected to would be found in the closets and chambers of those nearest and dearest to him than among the poor and unlearned inhabitants of windsor a few manuscript notes on the bible and a latin concordance in progress of arrangement which were found in the house of marbeck furnished an excuse for the arrest trial and condemnation of himself and his three friends nothing could induce them to betray any person in the royal household to save themselves from the fiery death with which they were menaced marbeck found an intercessor sufficiently powerful to represent his case to the king this was most probably either the queen or some person encouraged by her henry was shown the latin concordance of which several hundred pages were completed poor marbeck exclaimed he with an unwonted burst of sympathy it would be well for thine accusers if they had employed their time no worse a reprieve was granted to marbeck but persons testwood and filmer were sent to the stake july twenty sixth two days after their condemnation though the flames of their martyrdom were kindled almost in the sight of henry's protestant queen she was unable to avert the fate of the victims and well aware she was that the blow which produced this fell sacrifice of human life was aimed at herself and would be followed by an attack on persons in her immediate confidence the murder of these humble reformers was indeed but the preliminary move in the bold yet subtle game which gardiner was playing against the more elevated individuals professing the same religion with the queen dr haynes the dean of exeter and a prebendary of windsor sir philip hoby and his lady sir thomas cardon and other members of the royal household were denounced by dr london and simons as persons encouraging the new learning and were placed under arrest the only evidence against them that could be produced was contained in certain inferences and false statements which dr london had suborned Ockham, the clerk of the court to introduce into the notes he had taken at the trials of the recent victims the queen having obtained full information of these proceedings sent one of her most trusty and courageous servants into court to expose the iniquity of this plot Ockham was arrested and his papers seized which afforded full proof of the base conspiracy into which he had entered and the whole transaction was laid before the king the tables were now completely turned london and simons were sent for and examined on oath and not being aware that their letters were intercepted fully committed themselves were found guilty of perjury and were sentenced to be placed on horseback with their faces to the horses tails 
with papers on their foreheads, setting forth their perjury. They were then set in the pillory at Windsor, where the king and queen then were. Catherine sought no further vengeance, and the mortification caused by this disgraceful punishment is supposed to have caused Dr. London's death. Such were the scenes that marked the bridal month of Catherine Parr, as Queen of England, that month which is generally styled the honeymoon. Her elevation to the perilous dignity of Queen Consort afforded her, however, the satisfaction of advancing the fortunes of various members of her own family. She bestowed the office of Lord Chamberlain on her uncle, Lord Parr of Horton. She made her sister, Lady Herbert, one of her ladies of the bedchamber, and her stepdaughter, Margaret Neville, the only daughter of her deceased husband, Lord Latimer, one of her maids of honor. Her brother, William Parr, was created Earl of Essex, in right of his wife, having been previously made Baron Parr of Kendal. The preferment which Queen Catherine's cousins of the house of Throckmorton obtained, through her powerful patronage, is thus quaintly described by the poetical chronicler of that family. Lo then, my brethren, Clement, George, and I, did seek, as youth doth still, in court to be, each other state as base we did defy, compared with court, the nurse of dignity. Tis truly said, no fishing to the seas, no serving but a king, if you can please. First in the court my brother Clement served, a fee he had, the queen her cup to bring, and some suppose that I right well deserved, when sewer they saw me chosen to the king, my brother George, by valor in youth rare, a pension got and gallant halbert bear. End of section two.